But without any further delay, let's jump into the manufacturing hub. So today we are on episode number 12. We got uh, Chris Schlake with us. Sorry if I mispronounced that a little bit. And we are talking talent. We're talking about, you know, acquiring employees, new um, people to work for your company. We're talking about growth mindset. We're talking about uh, bringing up your employees to speed, how to coach people, and just a lot of uh, interesting topics around uh, working pe with people in general, because we believe, and I'm sure all of you will agree, that uh, that's a big part in manufacturing that I feel not enough people are talking about, right? And so we have a lot of questions for Chris. We're going to uh, take some viewer questions as well. Uh, but Chris, if you don't mind introducing yourself, uh, give us maybe a, uh, like, as I know, there's a lot of different segments uh, in your career, but talk to us, maybe like, what have you done? What are you currently doing? What are you passionate about? What are you um, interested in? Yeah, thanks for having me, both of you. I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm used to interacting with you guys and seeing some of the other people that kind of followed your podcast, uh, more about the technical bits and bytes. So um, it's interesting this topic comes up, which happens to be the one I'm there, became very interested in. So, you know, I was a classic kid that would go look at a dump or, you know, a dump truck or a cement truck for, you know, an hour if my mom let me and, you know, through those kind of cliche things we all go through, you know, found myself in engineering. Um, and um, so I did mechanical engineering and I had an internship where I was doing mechanical things, which I wasn't that interested in, in hindsight, but they had this gray box on this machine they built and it was blinking lights. And then once, you know, they finally went to test it, like things are moving up and down. I was like, what is that thing? what is that thing? Is it making it do all that? And I kind of knew from then, like, I need to go find out what that thing is. And it just, just played out that way. That thing was I, probably a control logics when I think back to the, the shape. So um, I landed in with automation consulting more. You, you do projects, but uh, um, a little less of like, you know, an OEM or a direct hire who's constantly working on the process and the hardware. Um, so I did that largely in the water and chemical industry for 15 years that, well, a couple, I jumped around a bit, but EA enterprise automation in my previous firm is really where my home was and where I came up with the most formative years. And so I was an engineer, project manager, engineering manager. And then I wanted to know a lot about more about life sciences and Emerson Delta V versus PLC SCADA. So I, I joined Caltrol just in September. Um, a little bit about me and, um, uh, Anyway, you know, I was thinking to your question about me, I was just telling my daughters some of the story. I have seven-year-old twins last night about, I stare at cement trucks all day. And anyway, funny, full circle. Thanks for having me on, yeah. I was curious with you guys, uh, not to hijack your show, but uh, because I'm used to interacting with you, you know, on a lot of IOT things and Alan Bradley, what made you discover this topic for your audience? Dave, do you want to give a... Yeah, so I, I think that, that that's a great question, Chris. And, and I would say, like, it's certainly something that I've always been passionate about, read re the talent, right? And, and, and training and all of that. And for me, I think I, it was 
exceptionally interesting. Uh, and this, this might be a little funny. It's exceptionally interesting because I've had a ton of absolutely terrible experiences onboarding, right? I've had a bunch Likewise. of, okay, perfect. So, so I've had a bunch of terrible experiences onboarding. I've had a bunch of terrible bosses in training and SOPs and procedures, and then going and moving on the engineering side, I see a lot of projects that get handed over with like an engineering PowerPoint deck or an operator manual, uh, something like that, that, um, that that is not very good, right? And, and no one who's not an engineer can follow along. And so for me, kind of going down to the talent and the training and kind of all of these conversations has been, how do I do, how do I make sure that the next person in has a better starting position than I do? And how can I make sure that we have enough, how can I make sure when we deliver projects that they're better than what they were so that we can actually have good conversations and we can actually help the end users succeed. And so Vlad kind of made the comment on, hey, we should talk about talent. And I'm like, yes, the market is exceptionally hot. This is something that I've spent, you know, years of my life being like, man, this is terrible. There has to be a better way. And like, like finding iterations and moving down the path of, of, of finding a better way to do this. And so that, that very much kind of led us down this path. Vlad kind of said, Let's do this. And I'm like, I'm sold, Vlad. Like, I thought there was going to be a conversation, but you threw up something that I absolutely wasn't thinking about, but I'm super passionate about. Uh, we, we certainly need to uh, to bring this further into the community. That's fascinating you said that, because I just told Vlad in our prep call yesterday, almost verbatim what you said of um, that carrying forward mentality. Mm -hmm. I think of all the things I struggled through that was unnecessary, you know, mm -hmm. And ended up in hindsight years later understanding, oh, that was bad writing. Oh, yep. no one delegated to me. Mm -hmm. Oh, no one gave me the full context, right? And I'm not trying to play a victim card, but in a, in a way, it actually gave me a superpower because it, it really charged me up to do better, not just with junior engineers, but anybody. Let me give you the full picture. Let me delegate the task. Let's talk about all the details. Let's, uh, let's do this right once, sort of, and have more fun in the process. So absolutely anyway, delivering your show back to you that's 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 i love technical things but i just learned in my 30s that that's where the meat is out of making a team click better mm -hmm. yes yeah. if, if you want to get to the next level if you want to onboard people if you want to grow and scale companies if you want to help teams succeed or projects succeed you have to get beyond just the very technical nuts and bolts into kind of the the, the human portion of the project, the scoffs, the soft skills, which you, if you will, and the soft skills are by far the hardest thing to learn. Um, but I find the most valuable if you can master them or at least become semi-competent in them. I want to segue into a, I guess, very closely related topic. And as I think like in some circles, this buzzword might be, you know, have somewhat of a negative connotation, but I really like the way like you discussed it, Chris, yesterday with me, and that's the growth mindset, right? So I think there's a lot of um, influencers, you know, that, like I'm not going to start diving into the names, but I, I really kind of liked how you described it. And, I, and so I wanted to get it maybe from you once again. And like, what do you see, like the importance of the growth mindset, not only maybe in like yourself as an individual, but also in helping people achieve those things as well. Yeah, welcome. Uh, thank you. I mean, thank you for the invite to this topic. 
Because I, I think, you know, I, I use it on almost all my posts and it can be a little bit cliche, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I really mean it. And kind of the story about and how I relate to it is um, uh, a business coach. I asked him for some reading recommendations and he gave me like mind de- mindset and primal leadership, or maybe it was the female brain. I didn't end up reading that one. You can ask my wife um, to confirm, but uh, I read mindset. And so my, my, my wife was in the hospital with twins and like a pretty complicated pregnancy. And so once the twins were born, um, they went to the NICU for a while. So I slept with my wife in her hotel room and hotel room, hospital room. And I read that book and it hit me like a bolt of lightning. And, and, you know, a lot of things we're going to talk about today, a lot of things I'm passionate about, a lot of things like I probably come across as an expert on, it's kind of what Dave said. They all come from fires. They all come from mistakes. They all come from like, oh, that's what I didn't know. How can I, how can I pay that forward so that people can spend their energy getting, you know, better on the, the skill side of it versus stumbling through. Um, and so that really growth mindset to me, and one of the reasons it hit me like a lightning bolt, because it explained what I did well, and it explained what I didn't do well. And what I didn't do well, you know, I got a little bit of the, I don't know what you want to call it, perfectionism or self-criticism thing. And so the things I don't like, you know, I wasn't great at mechanical design. So to me, it was like, oh, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be, you should be able to design everything, but you're not good at it. And 15 years later, I find this book that explains it. It's like, I never practiced it. I never made it a priority. The guys that, you know, I looked up to and kind of felt bad about with their talent, those, those guys built mechanical go-karts when they were six. And then they moved on to playing, you know, building cars and like true metal construction sets or whatever those cliches are. I did none of that. You know, I played Nintendo and all that. And so it both made me take pride in where I was at the time through hard work and also maybe give me some relief of things I'd beat myself up over. So that's why I cared about it so much. And then we, you know, happens to be where my daughters are born. So it's, it's just such a perfect timing now that I'm thinking about it. You know, I, I want to try to lessen that curse, if you will, of, you know, feeling an emotional load because I'm not instantly good at something. And so I'm, well, maybe I'll transition to it, but like, how do you teach growth mindset? And so I'm trying that with my daughters, almost, almost bad enough that I could be a Simpsons character. And, uh, <laughs> um, and I can see it in one of my daughters that she wants to be the perfect, she sits down at the piano and she's just immediately upset. She can't play jingle bells. This is actually last night. And even with this coaching, it's like, okay, some of that's neurological. So I got to press on that even more. And so one of the big principles around it is uh, someone with a growth mindset, it's very generalized. Um, and truth is we all have kind of some growth mindset and some not, we're not, but you can, you can emphasize it. Uh, is you getting good at anything takes practice. Um, it takes failing and, and you got to push through that if you want to get better at something. And what they call the fixed mindset was when you encounter challenges, you stop and just say, I can't do that. I wasn't born that way. And it, honestly, there are some topics that are probably like that, but, uh, and so they use a lot of cliche stories like, um, in high school, freshman year or whatever, there's one kid who's just a born natural in football. 
and there's another kid who's not at all. But the kid who's not at all starts working out every summer. Well, the born naturals used to innately having that gift and, you know, eventually the person catches up with them kind of. So that's the cliche story of it. Right. So really, I, I, I just emphasize it a lot because I, I feel like it's a lot healthier and um, it's kind of like setting your own expectation. You know, I'm learning piano right now because I bought my daughter's a keyboard and it's kind of always been a, a bucket list. And um, I get angry like my other daughter does. That's why I can see it. I'm like, oh, oh, it's not just, you know, growth mindset, everything goes away and life is perfect. It's like in those moments, like you've never played before. Stop freaking out. Like, okay, you know? Um, so that, that, that's where the power is to me. And then, and then, you know, growth mindsets are switching to the teaching side of it or recognition side of it. It's also recognizing people for the work they put in, right? Like you guys running this podcast, regardless of where you want it to be or where you thought it to be, that you're even here in this moment. Um, you guys didn't just plug in and it was an hour later, right? Yeah. I wish. No way. Vlad was trying to tell me this is simple. He could just send me my tool. I'm like, no, no. It's simple in concept from engineering thinking, but I bet you guys sat in a lab and played with this and bandwidth optimization and all that. And so anyway, recognizing someone for the work. Um, I really like the way you put it, I guess, you know, to tie this back a little bit to what I've seen in manufacturing, right? Whenever you bring somebody on board, they may not have the same, how to say it, like capabilities as yourself. And I feel that a lot of, well, I guess I, I wouldn't want to generalize like all the managers, right? But in many situations, you can easily misjudge what it's going to take the person to get up to speed, right? And I think it's important to be cognizant of, um, you know, again, like the learning curve and like the difference in abilities it takes. And to be a good coach, you would be, you should be able to a certain level, like gauge those capabilities, maybe to some extent estimate that time, but also give the person enough of a chance uh, to get up to speed, whether it is like on the technical side or on the customer facing side. And I've just like, I've personally seen examples where, you know, people that I thought were good, were just not given that like, that much of a leeway because the managers didn't know how to recognize, um, you know, the time it was going to take to learn those skills. So it's, yeah, definitely. it's good from both yeah. sides, right? It, it, I really like to bring in the workplace just to also as a form of positive recognition. Um, but, you know, just trying to avoid those, like this person's so smart. That's why their project went so well. Well, if some other people see that they're going to go, Oh, this is an innate intelligence thing because you don't mm -hmm. you don't see the most talented guy you you see you don't well maybe you guys see it but um, other people don't see that they're playing with Alan Bradley racks behind their heads you know from the hours of six to ten p.m. and they've been doing that for two years so they're actually like you know or maybe they've been doing it five years so they're actually two or three experienced years ahead of you right they don't see that they just see the smart guy so maybe they're just crazy um, I don't know. <laughs> those, those guys with the racks in their house and the guys with the racks in their house are always crazy <laughs> well, like like they are a hundred percent i'm not sure i met a sane person that had a rack in their house that they play with i have a server yeah. at home that uh i bought off uh ebay and yeah i used it for about a week or two and here we are two years later i was going to try to teach myself uh iot with it okay i was going to use a bunch of uh I don't remember you call them anymore. They're like $6 microcontrollers with a Wi-Fi chip off Amazon. Like you know, temperature measurement device. networks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, the, the craziness goes even deeper than that. I actually like play certain <laughs> like manufacturing games in my spare time. There's uh, I don't know if you ever heard of uh, Factorio, which is a like it's like a manufacturing simulation game. But anyways, that's, that's but, Vlad, I want to know how you, the person that just finished your MBA, had free time. I mean, you just cut down on sleep. You know, I'm okay. like trying okay. to stay awake, drinking yeah. coffee, but uh, yeah. that's where that's where Speaking you find of the growth time. Mindset. I mean, that's a major endeavor. Yeah, uh, it was good. Uh, it, I feel you know to the previous conversation we had on like why learn certain things. I felt a little bit frustrated by not knowing the business aspects that um, you know my colleagues and just. I felt a lot of the upper management was involved. And so I thought it would help me understand, you know, how business is done in general and like, why are we trying to maximize certain like manufacturing metrics, right? Because as an engineer, you're just like very focused, I feel on throughput and like how many widgets you make. But uh, as a more of a business minded person, you try and understand the entire picture. And so like to an extent, I was frustrated not having that, entire picture and for better or for worse i guess i probably could have learned it through other ways that were a little bit cheaper but um <laughs> I, I would i would feel that i always had this in the back of my mind like what if i did the mba you know what i mean and i feel for me the thought of like regret is greater than you know the price um i would have paid or have paid so but chris i want to talk about um speaking of i guess growth mindset picking candidates you know, and evaluating them for maybe the growth mindset or other characteristics that we've discussed yesterday. I actually did this for that. That was on my review, my interview card. <laughs> but I'm curious, I guess, like, how do you um, like interview people, select them maybe, you know, for different roles, right? Like it could be technical, it could be management. Like, what do you look for in people when you speak to them for like a specific position? Uh, willingness to do 70 hours and not ask questions. Ah. I'm in, I'm in corporate. Um, I don't hire right now, but I did a lot of it at my last job. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, back, like we were talking in the beginning, you don't get it, it. Hiring made the place no fun to be anymore, ultimately. And, uh, you know, the owners and myself and a couple of other key, key managers kind of just found ourselves not wanting to come into work anymore. And uh, uh, this is not direct, directly to your question, but this is how I found these insights I will share. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to give other people a story to go like, you know, I, it's not until you get exposed to other people putting words to something that you kind of realize your own insights, right? So maybe there's some of that. Um, so it wasn't fun to come in anymore. Too much was on our shoulders. Getting, you know, EA was a very high quality brand. Like you can bank on our stuff. That was kind of, what we sold, that's what we took personal pride in. That's a different life lesson, getting wrapped up in work. But uh, um, and it just more and more fell on our shoulders as more people got added. And the owners went to executive coaching, Vistage International, and through that process kind of got their eyes opened on, you know, where, where it was actually their issue. Who are you inviting in the door? Who are you keeping in that's not working? Are you measuring them? Have you told them what you expect? How do you interview? And <clears throat> they stumbled across a book called Who by Jeff Smart. I was telling Vlad about it yesterday. I'm posting some links as you, uh, as you tell that, the story. That book, that's probably the most tangible change to a business 
I've, I've probably read like, you know, 50 business books and that's the one that trans transformed the most in my view. Um, but in, anyway, it makes this case of like, are you voodoo hiring? What do you mean by voodoo hiring? Are you answering, are you asking single questions that give you single data points? Mm -hmm. Vlad, tell me about your time you were detail oriented. Oh, I was detail oriented in my last Alan Bradley project. Awesome. Can you tell me a time that you faced a challenge and what did you do? Oh, I had a hard challenge and, uh, and I faced it well. <laughs> you know, what yeah, are you learning about the person? Do you actually know who's, who's coming in the door? And in fairness, are you telling them who you are? So, you know, you're giving them information they need to know if uh, they want to be invited in. And uh, so the, the theory of the book is instead if you, you, you have to have a culture defined to, to measure against, um, but do, a, do an interview where you really get to know them. So maybe we take three to four to five jobs and um, we just ask the same questions. What were you hired to do? What was something you were proud about? Um, what was something that didn't go as well? Tell me about some of your peers. Tell me about your manager. Why'd you leave that job? And, and it's about getting curious once you do that set. So, what, what's something, what, what, what's your, who's your current employer, Dave? Me? So I, I'm a consultant. You don't have to I say work. by name, but. I work for wanted. myself. So, so my, my employer is all of my clients. What's, what's something you're proud of having, what, what are you most proud of having gone out on your own? I am proud of the fact that over the last, you know, 16 months of the pandemic in some of the craziest times that we have experienced, uh, we've continued to have people come and call and find us and ask for help. And we've been able to deliver good solutions for the frustrating times and, and honestly, scary times that they've been in uh, throughout the entirety of uh, throughout the entirety of that process. And how are you, um, I guess, how are you able to do that given the logistics issues and maybe some financial issues the clients are going through? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say on logistics issues. So I've been working remotely for more than the last four years. Zoom has been my, one of my best friends for that entire time. So as the world has gone remote, we have continued to work remotely. And a lot of that has been very similar. We've actually found more people, more clients, more end users who are interested and willing to have remote conversations. How, did you, how did you find them? That's very interesting. How did I find them? So most of them, they actually find us, right? So most of them are word of mouth or referral, or they have found me from a variety of other places. So uh, work that I've done, projects that I've done, people that I've known, uh, posts, other things online. Most of our clients uh, come to us to solve their problems. Uh, oh, yeah. So that, that's fascinating. Why? Because it's almost like you're saying there is some reputation that sells itself. Oh, I, I certainly think that, that there is reputation. You and know. what is that reputation? I, I think the reputation is that I am someone in the industry who is who has experience to help solve a variety of problems, but is also willing to think of, you know, new age solutions, right? I'm not the person who's going to say the only solution is this thing we've been doing for the last 20 years. I tell a lot of people that most of the things that we've learned from 20 years ago up to about five years ago while it is important to know where we've come from, we are very much starting over, right? In the last year and a half, it's been a, we need to refigure out, we need to try 
things that we may have previously written off because all of those things that we learned pre-pandemic have kind of all flown out the window and, and it's this new world and we need to figure out what works. So I, I didn't really set this up, but mm-hmm. I kind of just put you through a first part of that conversation. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I got curious about it and tell me more. Well, exactly. How did you do that? And so you need to do this a few more times to really call it a trend. But what I heard in your story was, um, um, and if this was someone's culture, well, you must be willing to take risks because you went out on your own. And for a lot of jobs, that's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to keep fed, you got to take initiative. Um, and it sounds like you're adaptable with solutions, not fixated, um, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. You would make those yeah. kind of reads and then you see how the behavior trends align with your job. And so like at EA, we were detail oriented. We were, we wanted to be risk managers. I eventually actually threw in their growth mindset because that's a big thing what I look for, Vlad, coming back to your actual question. Um, and the growth mindset, I mean, you got to put words to it. You can't just put it cliches like integrity, accountability, and we want to be DSO-oriented. No, you got to describe what that looks like. That's what gives you the power to compare against. And if you just have words, it means nothing. Integrity to one person means integrity to something else to another person. You know, some think of it as like an accountability. I do my stuff on time. Other people think I'm honest. Mm-hmm. Um, so once, once we had that defined and, and growth mindset was a huge one I looked for um, because it shows someone who just works through challenges and they don't stop. And that shows up in so many other places. Um, you know, they, they can't get working with support. So they try a plan B or they come talk to me versus sit in their cube, you know. So overall, I mean, just high level, you look for people with a good attitude, um, um, I was always in a client facing, so I had to evaluate, can I put this person in front of a client? Can they handle it? Um, and it's specific to their job. Do they manage risk? Do they plan? I want to see planners for the kind of work I was doing. Um, and those were kind of the kind of people I looked for. And then nice, the smartest, nicest people I could get. There was an interesting, I guess, phrase from you that came out yesterday that I actually thought about this like last night a little bit and it bothered me like in the morning as well but do I get paid for the podcast when I ask you that will I get paid for the podcast is that the statement you're talking about sure you can (laughs) send us a bad joke okay okay (laughs) you get equal third cut for what we make off of this podcast Chris how about that (laughs) that wouldn't be fair make it a quarter I mean a literal quarter (laughs) but um no, like risk aversion. You know, I thought about this quite a bit, like last night, you know, after we spoke and I, th- well, I guess like my thoughts were like, am I risk averse? Am I like risky? Like, cause you know, on, on one side you said like Dave went out on his own. So I kind of went out on my own as well, but at the same time, you know, I've prepared myself for quite a bit. So like, am I really risk averse? Um, so I'm curious, like why that trait specifically, you know, like I, I, it's been really like on my mind. I thought like, well, Technically, you would want people who are, you know, in many ways, like risk averse, because they're probably going to stay there for maybe longer. But at the same time, like for projects, maybe you want innovators, but at the same time, people who can balance, you know, delivering something that is kind of like proven, true and solid. But I'm curious if you could elaborate on that, like risk averse. Yeah, so I I think the context I was talking about is I don't look for risk averse. Mm. It typically comes with the people I do look for, mm-hmm. at least for project consulting. Um, gotcha. 
versus, you know, the, the person I look for at Amazon Labs trying to do a breakthrough product's not, not going to fit in real well. But, uh, you know, someone who pays a lot of attention to detail and is, I guess I'm doing a disc profile here because I use that some, but a uh, person like myself who's uh, very procedural, wants to see, see things get, get done the right way, the right way, that all the boxes are checked. Um, that's often going to be a risk averse person. I would agree with that. It's part yeah. of like what makes them want to do that. Some of it's personality and some of it's like, I don't want to fail. I don't want this to fail. I don't want to have someone come whack me on the head, right? Um, I don't want the project to go bad and we don't get more. So I don't look for risk averse. It just kind of came with the people, the profiles gotcha. I was looking yeah. for. It's it's an interesting, you know, thought. I, like I said, I've been thinking about it ever since we spoke and I I was trying to think you know, like companies in general, you know, you'd see maybe banners on their corporate website that would say we're looking for innovators or disruptors, you know, those are the buzzwords. But like in reality, when you maybe speak to some of the people within that company, I think who they want is someone who's risk averse, but that will take like very managed, you know, like risks within like in a confined space, right? And so like it kind of contradicts maybe the messaging in certain scenarios. That's a good example of what we were talking about yesterday. I would say in that scenario, then the innovators and the disruptors, those are very polarizing words, right? They mean very specific things, at least in modern social media and corporate culture. It's like, if that's true, like you, you don't, you're going to find a lot less people that are good at that. They're going to come with the risk aversion because that's what makes them good at that. Right. So that's probably one of those examples we said where, the words don't really match the actions or reality. Yeah, uh, completely agree. I think, uh, like, I guess I've been in those scenarios, like I said, and it's it's been always difficult to kind of understand, you know, that culture while you're in it. But like looking back, you could see maybe some of those elements, you know, and how they were portrayed in a different light than what, um, I guess like then what you were promised at the beginning. Right. And it's always, I feel diff- difficult to see it while you're in it. Right. But. Well, especially like, again, you know, I'm talking like I'm some expert here, but I, a lot of what I'm reflecting back on is uh, being kind of lost in my first several jobs because like, Hey, well, we keep saying this thing, but then when we go to the meetings or we go down to the production floor, we don't act that way. And I didn't quite say it in those terms, but it's always like this. I don't get it. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, it's just a paper on the wall. That's, I'm, no, no, take it down then. Because I, I kind of consider it like, this confuses me. Like, why are we putting this up? And so sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll bump heads with people because, you know, I get a, a little too stubborn about that kind of stuff. And I would yeah. also say that there's a difference between the things you say, like I want an innovator and a disruptor, and the actions and the people you hire. You could say you know, for your marketing materials that you're looking for innovators, you're looking for disruptors, and you can go hire the person who is going to follow the processes and procedures and be the proverbial company yes man, and just, you know, go and follow whatever path you're looking. So I I would say that beyond just words and things that you're saying you're looking for, it's the actions of the company that are very important. I realized like maybe the past, maybe in my mid thirties, that that's, you know, I have a certain intuition for things like we all do, but it's the ones I'm good at are like very hard to put words to, um, or they were. 
And that's one of my main tools I realize is uh, words versus actions. And I don't have to think about it. My brain automatically, subconsciously, like throws off a spidey sense when I'm not hearing coherent things. Mm-hmm. And it's helped a lot because I can manage risk that way. I can say, you said two panels. She's off there designing three. What happened? Mm-hmm. Like they come together and like, oh, blah, 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 whatever. Um, the same thing with corporate. Like, you know, if I'm, if I'm interviewing or, you know, if I interview, those things kind of stand out to me. It's like, you, you guys say excellence and people are the most important thing to your business. You just showed up 25 late. 20, the hiring manager just showed up 25 minutes late yep. to my interview and the, the receptionist has no idea who I am or who to see, you know? Um, and maybe it's a crazy day. So you got to be careful being judgmental, but at the same time, it's like, this is why talent is such a topic. It's your lifeblood. Mm-hmm. It's what you have to get right. If you want to have an awesome team, you know, you got to treat people well, invite them in, show up on time, show them that they're the most important thing, get curious about them. And, so I've, you can kind of tell, I get really frustrated Barry, when I see the opposite, where it's just like, yeah, this person could do that job or they were cultural fit. I, I think so. Yeah. We went to lunch, you know, I was like, in some places, maybe that's okay. But another place, uh, I don't know if you've ever had a hard time at your job and you feel like you have to take on more than you should have to, you might be in that kind of situation. You might also be a control freak. Many of us are those. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. But I mean, culture in general, like for me, I'll, I'll be maybe the first one to admit that like, it's, it's still an elusive, you know, aspect of, I feel of like corporate or even like small company life that I think is probably communicated a lot by, you know, higher level management, but isn't propagated. I feel well enough, or I guess like obviously there's, there's a lot of variables, right? Like if you have a very large company, it's very difficult to get it maybe to your line employees. But I I feel that it's still, how to say like a very big challenge to either, you know, keep the current culture or maybe to shift it to what you would like it to be. Right. And there's a lot of challenges there. I'm curious if you would, uh, would want to elaborate on that. Yeah. I don't know. Shifting, Shifting it sounds hard. You know, maybe I'll start what we didn't talk about yesterday, um, Vlad, is how EA defined its values that actually stuck and worked really well. And I was a big part of that process. And was particularly once I soaked in the technique, I really understood it. And it's like, if us three define a culture that ties us all together, and then we want to go define a different one where it's more disruptive and innovative, I'm not going to fit in anymore to your group because mm-hmm. I'm just a risk averse. And those aren't the things I think about, um, you know, so shifting culture can often mean personnel change. Mm-hmm. Um, right. it's, you can't just say like, we want more efficiency. So we're the efficiency culture. So we got the, uh, we got the efficiency mascot and those posters go up everywhere. That's, that does nothing. <laughs> yeah. It does nothing. Like if you want a culture shift, you really got to make some heavy sacrifices. Culture is major sacrifice if you want it to be real. It's going to be real or it's going to be uh, accidental. You're going to get one or the other. And, you know, my idealism doesn't quite always work in, in super corporate settings, but it can. Um, And so how we came about our culture was we kind of had a core group of us and we all like working together and we just tried to put words and it was actually pretty hard. 
to what it is that like made us rely on each other. And, you know, things started to merge detail orientation, uh, planning. Um, what was that conversation like? Sorry to interject. It was based on two things. Was, I think it was based on good to great in a, a, mm -hmm. a Patrick Lencioni um, article. I think it was him called uh, how to make your values mean something. Okay. And so, you know, first it presents a model. Well, first of all, let's define what those things are. Well, your values need to be what you already are, not what you want to be. You know, if you want your company more accountable, but you're not accountable currently, don't call that a value because it's, it's not. It's an aspirational value. So that allowed us to say, oh, right, we're not those things yet. So that all of a sudden gives a lot more clarity. And then it also presents another version. You know, there's a pay to play value. These are things you expect at a minimum and you don't even write about it unless you're really particularly so. Honesty, integrity, whatever those things are. Um, you can put it on paper if you want, but it's just a pay to play value. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, you, if that's what's on your wall, it's honesty. Are you an extra honest company? If so, then maybe that makes sense. Otherwise you just expect it. So that further allows us to filter out and get to the real meat of what we are today. And, you know, um, so that's what the conversation was about. We, once we kind of got some of that noise filtered, we, we all, I think, filled in like a list of 10 or something of the values we thought we were, maybe it was even 12 and with the five of us. And then we just kind of, kind of cross compared what the themes were. And then- I'm curious. <laughs> sorry, another conversation like- like Parts were a disaster, actually. <laughs> uh, sorry, on that same topic, uh, if you don't mind, like, so, I guess you mentioned a couple of books that kind of maybe gave you the starting point or the methodology, but what kind of inspired that you needed to go through that exercise? Was there like maybe a thought that the culture was not exactly where you wanted to be? Or did you take like any like coaching at that point in time? You know, like you mentioned uh, at the beginning, like what kind of sparked the idea that you needed to have that conversation? Misery. Okay. It comes okay. back to the story of uh, yeah. quite a few of us, didn't want to go to work in, in the morning anymore. Um, and in hindsight, with what I know now, we had grown from, well, I joined when there was, I was the fourth person who joined. And then by 2013, 14, when we were really in the heat of the hardest days, we were, I want to say 25 or something like that. So it's kind of like that initial culture, because I followed my then boss at a previous firm. I knew I liked him. I knew he would demand good work. I knew he would um, give me the resources to do good work and not, you know, shipshod stuff. And so really that was a cultural tie. I just didn't realize it at the time. So mm -hmm. I was like, I would rather work for this guy with four other people or three other people than risk going to another corporation where I have to stare at that poster and people don't do any of it. That's a, yep. I guess that's a bit of uh, absolutism, but you know what I mean? I, I just yep. do not what I do not do well in that setting. Um, um, it's a curse, but it's also a blessing. I, so I, I mean, followed him to work at EA and then like, you know, we had that core and we didn't know how to put words to it. And we didn't even think about it that way. It was just like, I like working with Chris. I have way less fires when he's on my job. And I'm like, I like working with Scott. We don't have to put up shoddy crap, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and some other things, of course. But uh, <laughs> And then we basically lost that in the hiring the six years after. So um, that's kind of what caused it. But it wasn't, you know, there just finally came a moment where I think they were like, and, and you also as business owners, I wasn't the owner, but 
it happens to everyone. You think you need that body. Mm-hmm. You know, your, your cash flow might be hanging on that body billing or doing whatever they do. And so that thought of removing them seems impossible, or they know some technology and you're only person with that technology. And what the, what the insight is that, that someone has to ultimately have is, is the benefit they bring for this one special thing, I think, or however many special things better than does it make up for the downsides? Mm-hmm. And at some point, I think most people hit life where, especially in engineering, you make enough money to where it's like, I don't want to be miserable nine hours a day anymore. Mm-hmm. And if I lose an Alan Barraday contract or something, cause that guy's not there. So be it. Or if I lose one of our key clients, so be it. I and mean, people won't make that kind of decision if they're, business is going to fold, but, uh, you know, if you've got some cushion, you can, you can start to have those kind of discussions. Um, and then a lot of times when you challenge yourself and you get beat up, like they did when they went to their leadership workshops, you find out your assumptions were wrong. You know, it's like that person was a key person because they haven't been cross training anybody. Maybe that's not their interest. Maybe they weren't told to, maybe they're trying to protect their own knowledge set, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Anyway, I could go on a lot of tangents on that one, but there's a lot of assumptions to test. We have to have that guy. I remember one time there was like one guy that we had to have because he was so good at this one little niche of the technology. And after a while, I was like, they're building things that none of the rest of us can work on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess some of the features are cool, but it's actually kind of annoying. <laughs> Even if it's brilliant, I actually don't value that kind of brilliance. It's... Uh, mm-hmm. Um, um, or at least in my, my own workplace. Um, Cause we're, we're a project engineering firm. We, mm-hmm. we did a lot of repeat work. Like mm-hmm. if you're going to do something so fancy, you know, only 10 people in the globe can do it with this niche product. And what's the point? What are we building? It's actually not good for the customer. Cause no. if us, the experts can't do it, they're not going to find anyone else. This is, like I said, this is for a particularly niche project where this was, or right. product where this was true. Um, anyway, you just reminded me of that story of like, you can do so many cool things with this code that I actually don't want you to. <laughs> I have several follow-up questions, but Dave, you wanted to. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was going to say, uh, Chris, I, I like the, the path that you're going down. And, and I think one of the points is, you know, culture is actions. It's, it's either the actions you take or the inactions that you take that come about to a company culture. And as you're growing and scaling, I feel like now in like the, the late 20 teens and early 2020s, everyone's talking about company culture. And it's important because I think a lot of us learn the lessons like you guys learned that if you don't hire for a cultural fit, like if they're not going to fit in the company and they're going to cause problems or there's going to be other issues or they don't fit the mold of who we are, then you're going to have issues within the company and you're going to have, you know, multiple cultures and you're going to have people that are upset with corporate or you're going to have people who don't like working on these sort of jobs. And they're going to cause issue with the culture, especially as you bring in other people and that the culture is the actions you take and not not the posters on the wall. And it, it, it has become more and more important and I think more and more apparent 
that you have to hire for culture and who you want to be as a company, both internally and also externally as clients. Like the people that you take on, especially as you mentioned, Chris, at some point you make in engineering where you make enough money that you have to strongly look at clients and say, hey, do these guys fit who we are as a company? That's a great point. Absolutely. And that's a tough call to make too. Like when you're a business owner like yourselves, but like they call it firing the client, right? Mm -hmm. And that I have seen that happen a few times. And yeah, we, always I, way I, too I've late. had to <laughs> I, I have had to do it in the past, uh, just because you know the, the client, the person in charge was I mean to, to use an overused term, they were toxic, right? Like it was good 90% of the time, but once a quarter they were gonna send an email Friday night or Saturday morning and just blow it up. And then you get back to the good terms, and it's like, hey man. Can I ask, can, can I ask for a favor? I've got another client that would like to see what we're going to do. And then they just lose it. And they're like, you guys have done terrible work. Like, I'm not even sure the work you're doing falls under the category that you're talking about. And it's like, Matt, after like the fifth or sixth time and the entire, you know, the company cycles through that client, no one is willing to work with them anymore. It's like, okay, like this person is causing issues far beyond the monetary dollar value that they bring. We have other work that we could put our engineers on. It's a, uh, we need to find a way to, to move away from this client, you know, support them until we can get someone else in there to do the work, make sure that there's that continuity and, you know, say goodbye to them because the, the issues that they're having for whatever reason are not going to be resolved. Yeah, you reminded me too, a little bit of a tangent, but um, I think a big part of the hiring and the culture, Vlad, that I want to emphasize is it's your fault. If you're in leadership, if you hired, I don't care if the person stole money out of your bank account and drove a car through your doors. It's your fault. They were invited here. A lot of times it's very common in management. They got allowed to stick around way too long because they're not being managed, you're not giving them measurables, you're not being fair by giving them the feedback, right? And it's kind of weird. That's I don't know, management, I'm kind of skeptical, uh, cynical about a little bit, because um, there's a lot of good managers, but you know, I guess I've seen a lot of the other two, um, where it's like the people part seems like the least important thing. Mm-hmm. And that is so completely backwards. It is so completely backwards. Like, I got to cancel that performance review. I've got I've to do this presentation. It's like, no, no. Not just like, cause you need to do a performance review of them, but you got to show them they're important. Like, I want to talk to you. I want you, I want to tell you what you do well. I want to, I want to de- develop some next steps. Um, um, and so anyway, just getting across the point, like it's your fault. You have to accept that. And I think that was one thing we did at EA too. It was like, there's no explanation. In fact, one of the, some, one of the people that's not working out, mm-hmm. we're actually making them miserable and like hanging, letting them hang on to that situation. And whatever their reason for staying in mortgage or whatever it was, is it's actually unfair to them, right? And we saw we saw a speaker called Cameron Haynes. No, 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 that's the <laughs> that's the bow hunter workout guy, Cameron <laughs> Harold. Cameron Harold, he was like COO of One Eight Hundred Got Junk, okay. and we saw him give a presentation at a big Vistage conference a long time ago, and he he like he said that in a way that just had a lightning bolt in everybody, including the owners I work for, you know, I got invited. It was basically like, you're doing that person that doesn't fit a disservice, not allowing them to move on or find a, find where they will fit. And, you know, they can tell people are giving them less work, 
mm-hmm. they can tell they're getting avoided. Like it's, it's jacked up and maybe we shouldn't do that, but whatever, that's what happens. And so anyway, that's another yeah. one of my little tools beyond just uh, do actions match words is uh, always look up any problem. Always look up. Yeah. And I feel like it also, you know, to, to that point, it reminds me of a, of a quick story, but it also makes the other teammates to some extent, like uncomfortable, right? Like in that atmosphere, and, you know, the story that I'll, I'll tell without mentioning any names or companies is um, like I've worked in one of my like first jobs. You can probably deduce which one, but we were doing this line install and I was essentially leading the night shift at that time because I was, you know, still one of the, the youngest engineers on the project. And I was still, you know, learning quite a bit about the technology, Alan Bradley, all this and that. But uh, I, I remember at some point in time I would come in you know, on the night shift. And I was told by some of my peers, like engineers on the mechanical side and process side to essentially password protect the system from the day shift engineer who was making, you know, different changes that were not like desirable or not seen well by them. It was, it was like very awkward, but at the same time, you know, it put me in a position where I'm like, well, how, how are we like not trusting this person to make changes and like i'm the one who's supposed to like lock oh. him out of the system and and it was like really strange you know like a, of an atmosphere you know it's not only strange maybe for that person but it's also like very weird team dynamic where nobody really says anything to that person oh, or like management those, but yeah. I, like you're in this like weird like limbo where like well you know like we don't know like there's a password like someone put in and like oh that flag he's, believe, he's the uh, new guy I also believe like a manager actually doing their job, employees should not have to report to them that they're having issues mm-hmm. with another peer because that's a very uncomfortable position. And for them to get to the point that they bring that up, it is so far overdue. And if you're the manager, why have you not seen that? Mm-hmm. Are you not meeting with your reports? Are you still doing all the engineering work? It's very common that, you know, a manager is like, I just can't get to managing performance reviews just have to come second to the engineering I have to do. It's like, well, then you're not a manager. Yes. Um, Absolutely. Or your company hasn't made a manager of a role if they're putting you in that position. And I think, you anyway. know, like just to close that out, like I think in hindsight, you know, I realized what was kind of the, the wrong way of doing things. But again, I was just, you know, starting out, this was maybe a year in after my graduation. So I was just like, Oh yeah, like, I guess this is kind of normal. It, it's kind of weird, but at the same time, you know, I'm just going to do what I'm asked because like, again, some of my colleagues had like 10 plus years of experience. Did that person ever, did that person ever come up to you and ask you for the code? Yeah. I mean, like, oh, that's th- so like, weird. there was a time oh, yeah. where like we had to like resolve it. Like he'd ask me like, well, why is there like even a password in the system? And like, what'd like, you say? Yeah, like, what'd I guess you say? we had to talk to management at some point, but it was, like I said, kind of an awkward like phase of that project. Cause again, like, like I said, it puts me in a weird position, uh, but also like the team dynamic was really awkward. So. Yeah. So like going back to what Dave was saying, his passion of mine is like paying it forward and putting other people in better positions. That would be one of them. Like when a new employee does a comp- company and it's out of college, I try to give them a lot of context and like you had no context there. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't know if they would have been anywhere to give it to you, but you know, that the, the kind of stuff we're talking about is not taught in school, not taught in engineering. It's not taught in a lot of companies even. Um, you know, it's, you see it in books and maybe now YouTube's a bigger thing, but uh, yeah, that's, that's just why I'm kind of ended up this way is there's so much I didn't understand my first 10 years. And then like what I'm really good at 
I didn't even know were things. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so I try, I'm trying to give that in other people. I'm like, do you realize how good you're at organizing? Like, what do you mean? The person going, what do you mean? Is like, everyone puts in folders and names it so that you can easily find it and saves time that way. And it's like, no, 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 not everyone does. You know, so it's like 5% of people do. So I'll tell you, this is a notable strength of yours. And here's where I think it can apply. But also so they know, right? So you know, like, what am I good at? What can I emphasize? What, what, what little thing do I assume is just a basic behavior for us all is actually making our group of five work much, much better. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, uh, at one you... point that kept the project one note immaculate. And that's uh, a really, and, and they were really, they were really smart and uh, productive in engineering too, but that was just their style. And it took me a couple months to realize there's a brand new hire that like, this person's like this silent glue behind the scenes that's keeping us on track execution wise. Hmm. You know, and in time I would tell them that and have them lean into it and coach them on it. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. Um, a very big pet peeve of mine, and I don't know if you work with uh, Google Docs, right? Like the the cloud, I guess. Uh, I did for a little bit. Um, but I, so to order the folders in a specific manner, oh. I always preface them with like a 01020304. And, you know, when I'd have like new engineers like join the team, like no one keeps the numbers. And so the folders end up in like random positions you know within like the folder and i would have to like l- really sit with them and kind of like re-explain to them why the numbers are there and to me like i almost get frustrated because like you see all the folders with numbers in them in that folder like why did you not put a number at the folder that you created but anyways that's like i i get really frustrated with that like all my folders are numbered like within you, even like, like my you, personal hmm? yeah i think it's teams and sharepoint which is kind of new to me on this job but uh there's one of them that will sort the folders by the most recently used mm-hmm. or the most heavily used. And I, it doesn't matter what number I put on front of it. That's how it does. And it's like, Oh, oh that's no, chaos. no, no, I, I could not work like that. Chaos. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay. Now I know you're risk averse. If you're, if you have a sensitivity to chaos, <laughs> well, I do. I mean, I, I have too. to have it I like in the same it. location because it's, you know, it comes down to another point we talked about yesterday, but you know, taking notes and remembering things and when I have like one structure for the folders, then I know always where they're going to be, right? Yeah. So if I've set up like my four folders, regardless what you add as a fifth folder, it's going to be in like its own location. But then like you always have consistency because I'm not going to remember, like I have so many like folder layers that I get lost myself sometimes if they get rearranged. The um, we, we, get, we, we, we got to a... Uh a critical mass with the, if you will, at EA, where our folder use, our OneNote practices, you know, how we use specs and all that was really clean and pretty much everyone was doing it a certain way. Um, um, and it, I had to reflect on it to realize it. It's just like you take a weight off. It's just like you take a weight vest off. Cause, oh my gosh, you know how to get to the exact thing in this project. And you just gotta ask the question that a project you're not on but you go right there and within five seconds you're, you know what they are. And, um, and I, I kind of got a big dose of the, uh, the alternative initially here. And it's the opposite, like ask me something and I lose an hour of time. Crazy. 
and and you know it's if you sit there for an hour just searching for something you know then i'm the wrong cultural fit or wasting right. that much time but yeah. then asking somebody and hearing oh it's over here ask somebody else oh no it's over there and then you know in the end not just did i waste that hour but now i'm that confused and i'll spend that much time trying to search for everything so Absolutely. it's kind of those little stuff that actually matters i i find I mean, it's the little like business systems, right? That you have to get right to have, a, I feel like a productive work environment, right? Like again, the alternative was the past where you would send somebody an Excel spreadsheet, then they work on it. And I, like I've been in those situations, right? Some Fortune 500 companies still work this way where you know, you've know you got a task list and then someone updates it in the morning then sends a copy to everybody. Then they put stuff in that gets like sent by email. Alternatively, you have again, like Google Sheets where everybody can log in and see what's going on. Like there, there's a, an automatic sync. And so obviously it's the price you're willing to pay for this. Like to me, that's like chaos, right? Like everyone just does whatever and like sends it by email. But anyways, that's, I guess, like organizational questions, which are interesting and we can certainly dive deeper into that. But I, I'm curious, I guess, to that same point, Chris, you had a methodology or a very good thought on how to bring up people, you know, once they are on board and you find like a good fit uh, with the culture, how do you bring up individuals or how, do, what is maybe the perfect onboarding cycle for you look like? Oh, this is kind of a weird question because EA, we, um, we had an insane onboarding initiative, you know, it cost the company in real dollars and opportunity dollars for billing an insane amount of money. So we would batch hire and then we would put the, through put people through what we called EA University. And so mm -hmm. one of the owners came up with this idea, I think from Vistage and, you know, he built this rig and said, we're going to do four weeks. And then I was involved in that first one because I was kind of the subject matter expert on writing fun functional specifications, which was kind of the heart of the engineering process mm -hmm. at the time. Um, and then I kind of just took it over and it was my own thing. So we basically put people, we put them, we essentially put them together on a real project using EA methodologies in four weeks and it later became five. Um, and so we taught them, first of all, kind of like the hiring theory of going young a lot is really not about young, it's about not shaped yet. Because mm -hmm. um, if you have someone who's smart, who is a cultural fit, and is naturally passionate about what you do, um, you, you, can teach, you can teach technical skills so much easier than you can teach cultural fit. In fact, you can't, you can't force cultural fit. Anyway, so we, we, did, a, we did a project. Um, it was like a Schneider Electric M3440 on a, a, a water distribution tank simulator. You know, I don't know, the size of this, you can't see the drawer here, but. Mm -hmm. But it had a real pressure transmitter on it to measure level. It had real uh, level switches on it, um, a pump, uh, a real control valve. And so we basically, um, <laughs> there's one guy who played the client and his, his job was always to mess with them as much as possible. And good Lord, did he do that good. Um, but to put him in that position, like we're gonna teach you enough about the controls and the methodology so that you can actually take the project over. Um, and the big heart of it was like, you know, they're writing a functional specification after they, inter after they interview the fake client. And then we're kind of coaching them along the way, not solving things for them, but telling them like, this is why we need meeting minutes. 
Uh, and we noticed nobody wrote it down or something like that, um, which didn't happen because we kind of got really good at the cultural fit. So we found everyone going, yeah, exactly <laughs> by when, who, when do you need it? <laughs> um, I guess you fine tune the process, right? As you go through these. Um, oh yeah, I, I got through nine of them. But by, by the time, I guess the point is like, they built a real control system that's working, that meets a client specification. And along the way, invariably, because they're inexperienced, they run into a wall and they have to pivot. You know, like the function blocks don't work how they thought, or, you know, I didn't realize it, how messy uh, doing an add-on structure or a DFB can be if you don't, you don't architect it up front. Or, you know, I told them we'd do like 80 alarms because it sounded cool. I don't even think we're going to be able to do 15. And those are the magic moments that really get, you know, show them much earlier what automation's about. And so that's what we did for onboarding. And I'll say the other thing I did for onboarding, um, I did well and I didn't have to, right? I, I didn't have to force it is celebrate them. Oh my gosh, we can't believe you find you here. It's so good to see you. It was like, I wanted to reconnect after interviewing and we saved your spot for it. We got your business cards. Like we've been thinking about you, right? And I was even messaging them before. So I consider that part of the onboarding process because I have a specific culture. Um, uh, Anyway, I, I kind of see it that way. And then I've seen the other way where onboarding is like, well, what's your name again? Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, I heard you're coming today. Um, got a lot of meetings. So why don't you just pop on over there? I think there's some boxes or something you can open. Onboarding, right? And that, that's pretty common in corporate. But mm -hmm. we, let, we left EA University. Someone would look at the time spent and the cost and say we're crazy. But we left after five weeks, someone knew how to do things the EA way and they've recognized it on their projects. They could see it. I mean, you still have a ton of experience to get. I mean, we even put experienced people through it too, just for the cultural reasons. But, um, and then like, you know, experienced people would edit or uh, redline their functional specifications and they would get it across like, oh, this is what detail orientation looks like. Okay. Um, and we teach them how to consult. Like here's, here's what's actually going on. Like give them that context. They need our expertise. They have a project, but it's not that well-defined. And we know that, they don't know that. So we're gonna go have a meeting where we try to feel that out more. Anyway, there's just a lot of soft skills like that that wouldn't be taught. Yeah, and, and you've mentioned something yesterday too that I really liked and it's, um, you know, a lot of people learn by understanding what the end goal is, right? And in the sense that you can probably tell somebody like, go do ABC, but in many, I feel like mindset, at least like this works for me, is understanding like why are we doing ABC and what is the end goal so that it like not only shows you like kind of the way and how to do this, but also like motivates you in a way and gives you an understanding, right? And I, I feel, I guess, again, drawing on my own experience, I haven't seen that done like always, right? A lot of times I'd just be told like, go do this and like I would do it without fully knowing and obviously... I would feel that the work is less adequate than if I knew why we're, we're doing this. Yeah. You make better decisions. It's just a lot of people don't think that way or they don't think you need to do it because you're a junior or something like that. Um, or it's not your role. And I kind of had some of those experiences myself where, you know, I got beat up over a decision and then like later on we draw network drawings for them. And then when I see the network drawings, like I would have done this way differently if like someone would have even shown me this on a whiteboard. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I always delegate the why and it's almost out of my own needs. It's like, I'm forcing my needs onto other people just because I think at worst, they've spent a few more minutes at best. They're going to make way better decisions. And 
um, ask better questions at client meetings and whatnot. And they're going to find the job more rewarding. Engineers like to build stuff. Engineers like to contribute. Engineers don't like to like, I made the spreadsheet, don't know what it does, but here you go. <laughs> so many examples. <laughs> here of you go. Tasks, right? like it's, okay. I find it unfortunate, right? Like I also have like example of that where um, I, I don't want to dive into it like too much, but you know, when, when people are given these projects and it's like, we're out of crunch time, we really need to get this done. They don't know why they get it done. And then it's like, oh, well, like this could have waited another like four weeks because it's useless to anyone, you know, until that time. And, like, that's, I feel like almost like a breaking point for an engineer where you're like really working hard because you think like somebody needs this and then no one really cares. In the end of the, oh the end my of gosh. The I haven't thought about it in a long time. Yeah. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You remind me too of like one of the stories, and I, there's countless of them. But how do you lead to these insights? Is you know we had one office where the people never had enough work, so it's like, can't they draw these three screens? Okay, fine, we'll go shift it to them. They go draw the three screens, animate it. You know, there's 40 hours in at that point. They put it back, and then like they look at it and like, well, you can't navigate through the page this way. Well, those weren't the data points we talked about, and then you know the normal human thing is going to be like, well, why did they do it that way? Blah, 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 blah. And if you really dissect and look at it, it was like, they had no knowledge of the job. It was a remote handover. This is a long time ago. Um, they weren't given the big picture they were fitting into. Here's the SCADA system you're fitting into. Yeah. Here's the client expectations. And, and why? Well, the people who delegated, you know, weren't coached on delegation techniques. They were really under the gun. So, you know, that doesn't make, that doesn't help. Um, Anyway, yeah, you, you made me think of that. Chris, we're way over the hour that we promised to hold you for. Um, I certainly have a lot more questions and I'm sure we can go for another couple of hours. I, I think like this conversation is really interesting and I really love the, the interview of Dave. I think we need to put him on the spot a little bit, a bit more often. No, no, but, I think uh, that, was, uh, that was good. I would also say, Chris, that I've been doing this the entire week so far on site with a client. So like I'm 20 cups of coffee in and a good coffee machine today. So if you were going to like throw me on the spot, uh, net now is a good spot to uh, now is a good time to, uh, to throw me on the spot, but no, no, I, I would agree with Vlad. I think that it's, um, I think that it's been a very good interview. We've somehow blown by the hour. I think it go faster and faster every time. Um, and I, I think like I, it's a hard hour. I tend to like, well, it's, it's not, it's not a things. hard hour, but we try to be like mildly respectful of people's time. Um, and, and so we like try to keep it generally around an hour and somewhere around an hour, it's like, man, how are we already at an hour? Um, and so like, th this is one of those things that, uh, th that we, we always, uh, that we always come to. I do have one point, but Vlad, I got a text message from Sean saying that he's, uh, he's pinging you really hard on YouTube to, uh, to please go ahead and take a look at the, uh, at the chat. But, uh, Chris kind of what, what you were mentioning with like project handovers and things like that. One of the one of the things that I have generally found lacking in non like well structured companies is just like general project management skills, right? Like we talk. Oh my gosh, dude, this is a podcast in its own. Maybe Chris and I'll have to get maybe Chris and I'll have to get on our soapbox at some point again. But like outside of just the management skills, which I agree are completely lacking, especially like if you take a you know SME 
project engineer and you say, okay, now you have this engineering team and don't put, you know, processes, procedures, any structure in place, any way to teach them how to be a manager, then it's like, okay, I have to do my old job. Plus I also have to manage all these people, which means I have to answer their questions. And so, but like, I think project management is a huge lack in this industry and it leads to all of those project problems that you were uh, that you were just talking about. So if you go, if you go join CSIA and you ask someone what's the most common problem businesses joining have, they they will take half a second to tell you project management. Bar oh, none. absolutely, absolutely. Far none. It's it's the, you know they do financial, they do HR, and project mm-hmm. management is usually what's hurting people the most. Oh, I, you know I, that doesn't that affects me. your cash flow, it affects your reputation, mm-hmm. it affects like how you schedule your team, how they're mm-hmm. utilized. If project management's a mess, then no, exactly. I mean, especially since most most systems integrators are, you know, they range from a couple of people to like a dozen people, maybe 20 people. And it feels like that's like the vast majority quantity wise of integrators. And that certainly like generally to get to that point, you probably don't have project management training or skills. And uh, and that becomes a, a major lack, um, a major lack. Yeah, we can we can do it another time if you want. Like PM is one of the things where I think you have to have the right person. The trainings are really oh, absolutely PM. Um, and like we, we talk a lot about scrum masters. So like on the software side, you know, a scrum master, very similar reasons to have them. Yet a lot of people who aren't like core competency software development don't have scrum masters or someone who uh, whose job it is to uh, to handle all of those questions. I have up till four thirty. I should be respectful of your time because I tend to. I like to ch- I like to chat. Sometimes. So I, well, I think so Vlad, Vlad has a have comment a question for from Sean. Okay. Sorry, I was um, I moved my monitor a, a bit further, so I wasn't able to fully read the question. And we were Sean and I done some messaging. All right. So Sean says this is an excellent conversation, Chris. Some great people don't mesh with other with some teams. What can a team do better in order to integrate team members and set people up for success? So I'm guessing not from a management standpoint, but a new colleague is uh, coming in. What can the team do? Oh, thank you, Sean. Um, I listened to a podcast he was on back in 2015. I think it's when he had his first kid or something like that. And then we messaged mm-hmm. some. Um, that's an excellent one because I, I had an, oh, uh, the seven habits of highly effective people. There's a page in there that hit me like a lightning bolt because I realized I had been doing it. Um, so if you're in a team, how do we integrate other people better? Sit down and have a meeting or however you want to do this, where the goal is to speak to your unspoken expectations. You may not even thought of them, right? And because I had a kind of toxic relationship with somebody that I now blame myself for because I had a bunch of expectations. I never even told them and I assumed we shared them and we didn't at all. And so that was actually a situation where I realized that. So I actually, as part of EA University, I found it so powerful. I put it in that and I used it a lot for coaching, which is. I like that. Well, it, it's, it, you have to challenge yourself too. Cause like, we are just not thinking of all these things until someone actually stops. Like what unspoken expectation do you have of the new guy that he doesn't know? Yeah. Like, we do not mess around about being on time. We don't care what the boss says. And has anyone told him that? Um, in my case, like the person did like a, a test procedure and it was super sloppy. And I was just like, and so what I did is I just built up brick walls. Like I'm not, yeah. 
I'm not going to interact with this person, which was so unfair. And, and I could have helped the company more too, you know, had I the skill and the realization that maybe I could have given him direct feedback and he would have done it differently from there on. I never told him that was such a burn on my side. Um, Do you think that maybe if he knew it would be integrating that team member with me better? Yeah, I was going to ask, like, at that point, do you think it should come from, I guess, like the hiring manager that brings in this new teammate to kind of set up a conversation with the current team and maybe set some expectations? Or would you expect the team members to take charge and kind of open up that door and have that conversation? I wouldn't expect anything. I'd be shocked if either one does it and I would applaud them. I, you know, where another thing I did was a how to work with me guide. So I wrote one for myself and then I would give it to new hires Hmm. and it's kind of, um, it's a, it's like an self awareness thing. Like what's the best way to communicate with you? Mm -hmm. How do we not communicate with you? What are some pet peeves of yours? What do you appreciate? And I can't remember. There's a few others, but I did find real nuggets in there. It's like someone would say, sometimes people don't think I'm paying attention and not contributing to conversation. But the fact is, there's so much going on in my brain that I have to go back and process it before I bring input back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this was one of my mistakes as managers. I was always go like, why aren't you speaking up? Why aren't you speaking up? Why aren't you speaking up? Like, I don't have anything to say. I don't have anything to say. Right. <laughs> I haven't even absorbed what you told me. And then like, you know, people who are that way sometimes can make the deepest connections too. So mm-hmm. um, who would I expect to do that? I would expect a manager to do that if they were informed about it. They should create that environment, bring those walls down. That's a pretty, I won't call it advanced, but a pretty uh, nuanced mm-hmm. thing for a team to do. But you can bring it to the team. It's just like, has anyone coached them? Has anyone exposed them? Has anyone filtered their stories for why these things matter, right? Has anyone pointed it out? Because you don't want it to become as like academic garbage, like with growth mindset. Um, I use real company examples. Like here's why it matters. And here's a time where actually I was fixed mindset. You know, I tell my own stories so that, I don't know, let me not go on too many more tangents. You said, should a manager do that or a team should do that? Both. Ideally. mm -hmm. It's an interesting point. I guess like, you know, now Mm -hmm. that we discuss this topic, I guess like I'm looking back at, again, like my experiences, right? And I feel that in like many instances, you don't get to choose who you work with, right? But you perhaps get to choose how you establish that relationship, right? And I mean, I guess through experience and just like growing older and seeing other things, I think it makes sense to maybe create some kind of a, like either a discussion or to simplify things, some kind of maybe guideline on how you typically work, right? Because otherwise the person is left guessing, and there's always a disconnect, right? Like either you get frustrated, again, the, the story of the folders and you have to go and take the time to explain it to them or they get frustrated because you're renaming their folders, right? And, that, <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, why are my folders like always rearranged by flat? <laughs> so, uh, the, um, the, with Sean's question, it's like, you could just have a conversation around that or you could try a how to work with me guide What's nice about that is you have a known structure that, ev- that everyone walks through. Um, yeah, I, I like that. And then it helps with, for me to have authority because it's like, this is what we're doing. They're like, okay. You know, I don't know what it's like in the oil fields. If you're like, we need to stop the pump. 
we're going to come over to the truck and write our how to work with me guides. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see when that. Sean tries it. I love that. Yeah, Sean, you, you can you try that and let us uh, report back? Uh, but no, no. So I, I like the how to work with me guide. I've done that before when I did onboarding. There would normally be a slide like about me, like the best way to contact me, ways to contact me, ways not to contact me. But I, I think that it's, I, I think that the conversations, kind of, kind of like you were saying, Chris, and especially when we've been working remotely so much, I find that the, you know, just generally reaching out to people even if, especially when you don't need something. So like once a week or, you know, a couple of times a week for, for newer team members, just to check in, to see how they're doing, to keep those lines of communication open are important. So they're not worried that, you know, they continue to come to just ask you for something or you ask them for something or, and that there's a, you know, extra layer of more personalized conversations that you can possibly have, even though you don't have the water cooler chat opportunities. There's a, there's a Harvard Business Review article. Um, it's something about executives and how they spend their time. Because, you know, mm-hmm. the industries move towards um, industry, meaning broader business cultures, kind of move towards p- personal productivity and maximizing their minute and, um, you know, get things done, put more output out. And, you know, it made the argument, like, if you're a manager and executive, you shouldn't do that. I would agree with that. It'd save 50% of your time to just go talk to people. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't until I read that that I realized how much I picked up just through like doing an extended conversation with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, that was kind of the article's point too, is go check in with someone. Like, how's it going? Oh, the project's going, man. Yeah, it's pretty good. Although I was a little stressed out. Like, stressed out? What happened? Um, you know, did you not get some sleep or something? Like, no, it's this project. Like, this guy's just being really rude. I'm kind of making a contrived story yeah. that gets real, but it's like you start talking about the gym and how you're sore from a workout and you just got a dog. And somehow you find out that you end up like five minutes later knowing like this project has a major problem and we need to go look at it now. And it's hey. all accidental. It's all mm-hmm. accidental. Or I've learned a lot too, where I go like, I had no idea that's what the person was doing. Mm-hmm. I have to go recognize them. Or I have to go get them to train this other person to do something. There's just all these dots that and value to connect. So, yeah, that 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 productivity outputs way overrated for people in leadership. Yeah, no, I love that. And I feel like we could go 17 more hours, Chris, especially if we get back on the the PM uh, soapbox. But before we let Vlad wrap up and be cognizant of your hard stop at uh, at 4:30, uh, something we like to ask everyone to do is you just kind of reiterate, you know, who you're working for, who you're working with, what your ideal client would look like. If someone is in the chat looking for your services, you know, how, who do you help and who does your ideal client look like? Oh, that's a cool question. Nice. Um, so I work for Caltrol Inc. We are mm-hmm. the, uh, the, West, the West Coast uh, Southern Region uh, distributor and integrator for Emerson Delta V, which is a okay. DCS. Very popular in... Uh, large process controls, uh, chemical, pharmaceutical, real big in life sciences because of some of the features it has. Um, but we also sell their hardware. So it's both the distributor and the, who do we help? Um, so we help a lot of pharmaceutical and chemical companies um, with Delta V upgrades and controlling risk, keeping them up. 
Um, that's what we're good at. And we're starting to move into taking on more um, true pharmaceutical projects. We were flushing out a true projects team, you know, people who know how to write URSs and um, do that higher level planning with the client. And the ideal client would be, and I'm sticking more off for my sake, but respectful, um, recognize the value, you know, it, penny pitching is a bit tough when you get to um, Delta V because it's real, it's real strength is in large applications mm-hmm. um, and saving, saving dollars that way. Um, yeah, I can't, I haven't, I mean, I've just been here six months, so I got to work on the elevator pitch a little bit, but. No, no, that's perfect. So normally on the prep call, I would have prepped you for that, but, uh, but, but sadly I was unable to make it yesterday. And so the next time we both get on our soapboxes talking about project management, I, I am sure you will have a better elevator pitch, uh, elevator pitch for that. Well, if we get to that, I'll, I'll bring it right back to like, it turns out psychology, man, psychology man, man, matters the most. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which I would have said heresy when I was in my 20s. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate it, guys. I like connecting like this. Uh, it's kind of weird that we vaguely know of each other through all these posts that have never actually met. So it's very cool. Oh, by the way, I used to, after people came out of EA University, uh, at least as of last year, I put them in Solus PLC also, each one Boom. of them. Wrapping it up, taking us from the beginning where we asked people to, to subscribe to Solus PLC to hit 20,000 back to Solus PLC. Thank you for that, Chris. I, I, it's true. Thank you. Appreciate it. Do you uh, do you want to close this out, Vlad? I'll let you do it, Dave. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, everyone, uh, thank you very much for manu- watching and listening to Manufacturing Hub uh, number 12. We've somehow made it to 12 already. If you guys are watching on YouTube or any of the podcast things, uh, hit the likes, comment, subscribe. If you're on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars uh, and talk about Vlad's haircut and what you think Vlad's haircut looks like um, or, or what, what is behind him in, in the wall. It doesn't really matter, but apparently it makes a difference that you guys say things. Uh, Again, Chris, thank you very much. All of the information you guys can find, find us on manufacturinghub.live. And we should be back next Wednesday, the 12th, with another episode, episode 13, continuing to talk talent. Beautiful soldering iron, by the way. Thanks. Glad. I looked that one up. It's awesome. Okay. I don't use it as much anymore in controls, but really appreciate it, Chris. Thank you for coming on. Bye to everyone on the live stream.